Welcome to CPAC Today in Politics. Coming up, the federal government advises against non-essential travel. We are bringing in a travel advisory that will mean a lot of people will choose to cancel travel plans uh, during the holidays. But it also is a clear indication of how seriously we take this new variant and the situation we're in. The provinces introduce new measures to fight the spread of the Omicron variant. While there remains much we still don't know about Omicron, there's one indisputable fact. The Omicron variant is the most contagious, the most transmissible variant of this virus that we've ever seen so far. And a Conservative MP says his party should take a look at what its position is on Quebec's Bill 21. I personally think uh, when something like that, when people are being targeted because of their religion or their religious, uh, uh, the the things they wear because of their religion, we should speak out uh, against that as Canadians. It's Thursday, December 16th. I'm Mark Sutcliffe. Let's get right to the top political stories this morning. I'm joined by National Post columnist John Iveson. Good morning, John. Morning, Mark. So we've seen provincial governments reacting to rising infection rates, including in Ontario, uh, and we've seen the federal government now advising Canadians against non-essential travel. Do you do you expect that we're we're going to see more measures put in place? I know this is something that Canadians are dreading and. Many people have been hoping we'd never be back to the point of having this discussion, but are we going to see more measures put in place to restrict the movements of Canadians as infections rise? Yes, I think that is inevitable, sadly. We saw yesterday the federal government put in place this travel advisory and provincial governments started putting restrictions on the number of people in venues. You know, I mean, I think if you limit the the number of people in a hockey arena to half, it would seem to me that that is probably not going to be enough if the thing starts ripping through the population as as we expect it to. So I expect to see further restrictions on that front. I think what the federal government did, to be honest, was just window dressing. Um, you know, the, the the travel advisory has been largely was largely ignored. I mean, people were still traveling while it while it existed last summer. I mean, it's more. I think theatre and the appearance of leadership because it was pretty much the only thing they could do. I gather from talking to people who were familiar with the call that took place between the premiers and the prime minister uh, on it would have been uh, Tuesday evening I guess. You know, one premier asked Theresa Tam whether it would make any difference and apparently she said no. You know, the new variant is here. Stopping people travelling is probably not going to have that much of an, an impact. It might buy us a little bit of time I guess. And then when uh, the federal government wanted to ban foreign nationals, the premiers turned that down. When they when they talked about 14-day quarantine, quarantine, the premiers turned that down as well. So I think this, the, the federal government was left with the only thing it could do, and that was advise people not to travel. And my feeling is people are just going to ignore it. I think people who are double-vaxxed and, and who, maybe even who have a booster are just going to head off to the sun. Yeah. And, 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 and the government is obliged to let them back in again. As Canadian citizens, they can't stop them coming back. Yeah, and it, it's interesting because as, not necessarily yesterday, but at different times during the pandemic when there have been these warnings about travel, uh, shortly after that, I'll get an email from Air Canada 
uh, offering deals on on travel and saying, "Hey, it's time to fly again." Um, so, um, right. there, there are a lot of things going on at the same time, and and people obviously are going to want to see each other over the holidays. Um, and you, you, as you were talking about that, you, you know, you pointed out if you look at at uh, a, a Toronto Maple Leafs game or a Toronto Raptors game, uh, what's accomplished by having 10,000 people there instead of 20,000. That's still 10,000 people gathering in the same place in relatively close proximity, even if they're in every second seat. Um, yeah. it's, it's, it, it doesn't seem like, like a, a, a measure that would have a great deal of impact. It seems more symbolic than anything else. I, I think it is symbolic. And I mean, in British Columbia, for example, there's, there, there's still no ban on mass gathering. So, you know, in, in Quebec, they're still loosening the rules. You know, at the moment you can have 10 people gathering it from the 23rd of December, it's going to be 20 people. So, you know, until we see some evidence that not only that this thing, uh, that Omicron is actually more transmissible, but it's actually, there's a degree of severity to it because the, the science from South Africa and even from the UK, uh, that it may not be as severe as the Delta variant, in which case if people think, I've just had enough and I'm prepared to take the risk because the consequences may not be that great, then I, I think some of these public health measures, which have may have worked in the past, uh, may not work this time. And, uh, and certainly the travel advisory, I don't think it's going to work. Yeah. All right, let's turn to Bill 21, which has, um, of course, uh, discussion about that has been uh, precipitated by the removal of a, of a teacher in western Quebec uh, and... Um, and there's there have been there's been reaction, of course, from all over the country, and and uh, and questions of federal politicians on what they should do. And there are some conservatives saying that the party should take a stand on this. There are some people saying the federal government should participate in the court challenge. Uh, but it's it's obviously a delicate matter because it is a it is provincial jurisdiction and it is Quebec. So, uh, how do you see this playing out? Well, you're right, it is Quebec, but people are angry this time. I mean, I, I'm, I live in Chelsea, Quebec, and that's where the, the teacher was, was moved. And it takes a lot to get the, the residents of Chelsea riled. And yet there were 200 of them outside the local uh, uh, provincial parliament, uh, the, the member for the pro- provincial parliament, um, outside his office the other day. A lot of MPs are speaking out about this, including uh, Conservative Mark Straw was out this week saying that this, some issues transcend jurisdiction. You know, a lot of MPs were told to keep quiet during the election campaign, not even just the 2021 campaign, but the 2019 campaign, because the bill came in before that, because obviously they didn't want to upset Quebec voters and lose seats in Quebec. But with with the election passed, suddenly a lot of uh, what I called a bandwagon of MPs has appeared to uh, to condemn this, this bill and demand some action from the federal government. Well, the, the bill is currently before the Quebec Court of Appeal. And I don't see the federal government intervening in the Quebec Court of Appeal, but whichever way the decision goes there, it seems inevitable that it will end up at the uh, at the Supreme Court. And I think the federal government will have to intervene there. I mean, it's it's ironic that Quebec says this is its own jurisdiction and nobody else should get involved, when if you look at the, uh, the greenhouse gas case, which was... Uh, was uh, the one the Supreme Court, which involved Ontario, Alberta, and Saskatchewan. Quebec was an intervener. It saw that, that, that the Constitution applies to everybody and that it should have a say in what happens on carbon pricing. 
So right. it intervened in a case at the Supreme Court. I think it would be very rich for it to turn around and say, well, the federal government and even the provinces cannot intervene in something as fundamental to the Constitution as, uh, as this bill. Right. All right. Finally, John, um, the, the fiscal update, of course, happened earlier this week, and already questions are being raised about what this means for the, uh, the current situation means. I'm sure that fiscal update uh, was heavily affected by uh, the, the rising number of COVID cases, as we've already discussed. But what does it mean for the government's election promises? And as we look ahead to a budget in the spring of 2022... I describe the uh, the fiscal update as a modest document with much to be modest about. Uh, and even Christian Freeland acknowledged that it was not the master plan for the Canadian economy, which she said will come in the spring budget. And that's going to contain measures to promote growth, she said. Now, that's great if it happens. I think that the economy is desperately needing, um, needs to become more dem- dynamic, more productive, more competitive. It needs, it needs measures that are going to pay off in the future rather than spending a lot of money on consumption right now. But unfortunately, the, the Liberal Party promised $78 billion worth of promises in the last election. You know, $6 billion for provincial health systems to eliminate backlogs and surgeries, backlogs of surgeries and procedures, <clears throat> 3.2 to expand family doctors, 4.5 on new mental health transfer, 6.7 on safer long-term care, on and on and on. I mean, lots of promises. Presumably, the Liberal Party wants to keep. So if you, if you do all that, then you're probably not going to have this uh, growth budget that, that Freeland is talking about. And it's going to be very hard to keep on track as far as uh, the debt-to-GDP ratio ticking down. Now, this is their one promise. Never, they haven't promised to get the budget back into balance, but they have promised that the, that the amount of debt as a proportion of the size of the economy will continually reduce. Now, spending $78 billion is going to make that pretty hard. And, uh, you know, I was speaking yesterday to Scott Clark, who was a former Deputy Minister of Finance, who's done lots and lots of budgets. Um, you know, he said these are nice words from Freeland, but I've heard them before, he said. He said they've got to do childcare, which is already in the fiscal framework, so, they, so they're going to obviously do that. They've signed deals with all the provinces. They've got to do some of the stuff on healthcare. But he said they can't do anything that doesn't support growth. And he said a lot of that $78 billion is white noise. But what he, what he concluded, and I agree with him on this, which is I don't think the, the government has the willpower not to fulfill those commitments. Right. All right. We'll see what happens, John. Thank you so much for joining us today. Okay, Mark. Thanks a lot. That's John Iveson of the National Post. The inflation tax got worse in November. We're slightly higher consumer price inflation. And now we learn that house prices are up 20% year over year, even while the economy shrunk. Now, here's what political columnists, commentators, and editorialists are writing about today. In the Toronto Star, Linda McQuaig argues taming inflation can be worse than inflation. McQuaig writes, inflation erodes the real value of money. It hurts people who have a lot of money, but can help those who owe a lot. It also means higher prices for consumer goods, which hurts workers unless their wages are growing as fast. And Canadian wages are rising. But the standard narrative is that everyone should be very worried about inflation. There's a simple question. 
to determine whether you should be. Am I rich? If the answer is no, chances are you'd be better off with a little inflation than with high interest rates aimed at crushing it. In McLean's, Justin Ling argues Canada is once again fumbling its pandemic response. Ling writes, Beyond a new travel advisory recommending Canadians avoid all non-essential travel, the government has announced no major new travel measures but suggested they may yet announce new steps. The last 24 hours has been a scramble to try and put in place a new plan to manage travel in the shadow of the Omicron variant ahead of the Christmas holidays. How we got here is emblematic of how governments have been caught flat-footed every step of the way during this pandemic. In the National Post, Colby Kosh considers the mystery behind Justin Trudeau's two climate change committees. Kosh writes, These committees have 14 members each, with no overlap. They can't possibly both tackle the same subjects at the same time. Cabinet committee consultations are designed to lead to formal recommendations that go to the Prime Minister. It seems obvious that these two committees could lead to policy contradiction and wasted effort. It feels as though the government is admitting that the mandates for these committees are very unwieldy and that the work needs to be broken up. But they just haven't figured out how to do that yet. Now here's what's coming up on today's political agenda. The Prime Minister will speak with Ontario Premier Doug Ford and in Enoch, Alberta, Tourism Minister Randy Boissonneau will announce a partnership to improve high-speed internet access in rural, remote, and Indigenous communities throughout Alberta. And that's CPAC Today in Politics for Thursday, December 16th. Tune in to Primetime Politics tonight on CPAC for coverage of all the day's events. Our podcast returns tomorrow morning. Have a great day.